0: How's everybody doing? Good. There you go. There you go. It's good. Good. Right? Like, we're breathing. We're at church. Like, it's hot outside. It's not cold. Life is good, right? So, okay. This is not a very funny story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways because I thought it was kind of funny. So, there's a family here at the church that, um, uh, they have a, a, a really nice home, and they're out of town a lot on the weekends because, because they do different work kind of throughout the country. And, uh, and so they were out of town this last weekend, and they offered me a key to their pool house. Like, they're just like, hey, we're going out of town. You can take your girls swimming. Here's the key to our pool house. And I was like, that's awesome. They live in a really nice neighborhood. So we, we've been over there, like, literally every day they've been out of town. So... Uh, and we were over there the other day, and my my girls want me to drive. I've got an old '63 Ford, which I bought for like two grand, and it's you know like it's a work in progress. And uh, sometimes it wants to start, and sometimes it doesn't. But we took that to the house, and um, so we drive over there, and we're wearing like you know swimming attire, and so we already look like rednecks, right? So uh, we we um so we pull and we park in this house. And I go, I'm going to go get some dinner for us and we're going to eat it out there and we'll just, we'll swim. And so we've been swimming for a while and and I go to start the car and I had flooded the carburetor on this car and it won't start. And I'm like, ah, you know, not a big deal. So I'm like taking apart the filter cover and doing all this stuff and I'm getting grease all over my hands. And I'd ordered pizza since I couldn't go out. And so the pizza guy was coming and he parked and uh, he called me and he goes, hey, I'm at this house but there's this guy, like, working on a car out front. I'm like, oh, that's me, man. So, like, I came around the corner, and this, <laughs> it was like a million-dollar house, and this pizza guy's just staring at me. He doesn't want to give me the pizza because he probably thinks I'm, like, breaking into the joint or something, you know, and, and I was like, dude, it's not my house, you know, and he's like, oh, okay, you know, he gave me the pizza, and, and so uh, I was like, all right, have a good one. I tipped him, you know, so... Uh, but anyways, it was just—it was just kind of a funny story. I, you know, I walked around the corner and like I'm just wearing swimming trunks and grease up to my elbows. I'm like, "Hey, you got my pizza?" and I just looked like an insane person in that neighborhood. I'm surprised the police weren't called earlier on me. But uh, anyways, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. We've been in the Book of Hebrews for a while. We took a break last week because we did baptism services, baptized almost 70 people, which was pretty cool, right? Yeah, that's that's not too bad. And um. So we got to baptize a lot of people, had a really great worship night, had a really good weekend, it was a good turnout for the worship night, it was really, really good. So uh, two weeks ago, we were in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, and if you don't know where that is, if you have a Bible, New Testament towards the back of the, the book, right before the book of James, and um, you should have got a notes handout, and it's on version. if you have the fancy app on your phone, go to the bottom right, click more events, our church will pop up and everything's right there. Um. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about chapter 11, and in chapter 11, it's kind of almost like a crash course in history, biblical history of the Old Testament, and it goes over a lot of the heroes of our faith, basically giving us encouragement that these men and women, it talked about Abraham and Sarah and Rahab, who was a prostitute, and uh, uh, Jacob and Isaac and all these different people, it talked about in the Old Testament, And it mentioned all these individuals and told us a little bit, a little snapshot about them, Moses and other people like this, to show us that God can do extraordinary things with even the most ordinary people like you and I, but in order to do that, it takes faith. We have to have faith in God, and if we have faith in God, He'll do amazing things through through us, you know, even us. And so... To build on that, going into chapter 12, there's more encouragement. The author of this letter, we don't know who it is, we don't even know who it was written to, but it was probably lit, written to men and women who are struggling with their faith, they were having a crisis of faith, and at the end of this letter, the author is encouraging them. He's saying, have endurance, hold on, keep pushing forward. And what he says in chapter 12, what we're going to talk about today is this. The author says, hold on to Jesus, hold on to his teachings, because all things are going to be shaken. All things are going to be shaken. We're going to end with that idea. All things will be shaken in heaven and earth by God, and the only thing that will stand is the kingdom of God. So the question isn't what will stand. The question is, are we standing in the right place? Are we on proper footing? Do we have solid ground underneath us? So that's what the author is going to encourage us to do today, to make sure that we assess where we are and that we're standing in the right place. I almost misspelled assess in my PowerPoint this weekend, and I would have never heard the end of A-S-S-E-S. I was doing a second go-round, and I'm like, oh, God, thank you that I found that one, right? Right? That would have been really, really bad. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to pray because obviously I need it, right? So I'm going to pray, and uh, this is a really good lesson today, guys, not because I wrote it, but because the Word is just its, it's just a really good chapter. Uh, I'm going to dive into this. The first part's a little lengthy, but the rest of it will be cut up, and um, it won't be too long, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into chapter 12, and um, we'll see what the Lord has for us, okay? Really glad you guys are here. So We are so blessed. We're so blessed. I love the summer and I love the fact that our church is still strong in the summer and I just love you guys so much and I hope we tell you enough just how much we we appreciate you guys. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I love you. I just thank you so much for this church, God. I, I, I have so graciously been given the opportunity to serve the greatest church in our city, Lord, and, and I love these people, God, and I love how we get to come together and I love what you're doing, and we thank you so much for last weekend and what you're going to do in the future. And Father, we pray that you bless all the other churches in our city, God. We pray, Lord, that you bless the nonprofits, Lord. We pray, God, that your kingdom is advanced through us, Lord, that we can be a unified front, that we can work cohesively together, God, Lord, to advance your kingdom, to make your name famous and not ours. Lord, I pray that everyone who hears the word today, God, that it doesn't fall on deaf ears that we take it and we apply it and we use it, God, for our benefit, Lord, and so we can grow closer to you. We thank you, Jesus. Keep your hand on me as I teach today, God. Help me to be accurate and gracious and concise, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit from chapter 12. Again, the first part's a little lengthy, and then I'll go back and break it down. Here we go. Therefore, since we have also a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne." "'For consider him who endured such hostility "'from sinners against himself, "'so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. "'In struggling against sin, "'you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, "'and you have forgotten the exhortation "'that addresses you as sons. "'My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly "'or faint when you are reproved by him, "'for the Lord disciplines the one he loves.'" And punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as a discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But He does it for our benefit so that we can share in His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, though, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So if you read chapter 11 about all these great heroes of the Christian faith, right? I know they're all Old Testament, but these great heroes of the Christian faith. It's neat to think about that all the heroes of the faith, along with God himself and the angels in heaven, are cheering on the saints right now, us. They are trying to encourage us to press forward. And we have this cloud of witnesses that are behind us. And so God is all about community, Even within himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity of God, God had perfect community even without people. Even before he made people, God was perfect community within himself. So the makeup of how God does things is communal. And so we have all these people pressing us forward, we have the testimonies of those around us, we have the testimonies of the people before us, and it shows that we need each other. We need the church, we need encouragement and accountability from the people around us. And so when we receive encouragement, encouragement from the saints around us and from God should push us and lead us into righteousness. As we mature in our faith, we are to start moving or removing, casting aside things that hinder our growth towards God and things that cause us to sin. It is not legalistic to be careful about what you watch, listen to, and where you go. That is not legalism, that is wisdom. If I struggle with alcoholism, now look, it's not a sin to drink alcohol, but if I struggle with intoxication, it's dumb for me to go to a bar. That's not me being legalistic or dogmatic, it's me being not dumb. And so if we struggle with sexual sin, we shouldn't watch sexually charged romantic movies. And again, if we struggle with our language or our or, or filthy mouths or whatever kind of things we say, maybe we should watch what kind of music we're listening to. Again, that's not legalistic, that's just being wise. We're all called to separate ourselves from any thoughts, attitudes, or actions that will impede our spiritual growth. And if we don't have that weight, if we don't have that sin in our lives, we are then free, we are truly liberated to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. If I'm not addicted to pornography, I can focus on making my marriage better and being a better father and being a better pastor and being a better friend because my time is steward better and my conscience and my heart is clear. We have to remove that weight. We have to remove that sin. So, if we're ever wondering how to do that or the best example of that, of course, you know, the go-to, right, Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, there is this analogy that is used of running a race. We are running a race not to beat our neighbors, but to have endurance and to finish this race. And if we think of our spiritual walk as a a race, as, as being on a track, we are following the pace setter, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus showed perfect endurance through what he did on the cross. And if we focus on him, we will be okay. Our problem is this, and all of us fall prey to this. On this road of life, this race of life, this endurance that we're supposed to be having, there are all these things that that, that try to distract us and pull our attention away from what we're supposed to be doing. All of these things are not evil in and of themselves, Facebook is not evil in and of itself. Instagram is not evil. Internet is not evil. Television is not evil in and of itself. It is the fact that we give four or five hours a day to those things and we are not reading the word of God. We're not spending time with our family. We're not growing and maturing in our faith. That's the problem. We have an unhealthy fixation on things other than Christ and we become distracted. And so we're more concerned with keeping up with the pace of culture or economics, or employment, or whatever the case may be, that we lose sight of the true pace that we're supposed to be on, jesuss pace, what he's doing. And so as we go through these times in life, when there are roadblocks, when there are curveballs thrown at us, when life kind of deals us a bad hand every once in a while, as we suffer, it helps us to, to maintain our endurance by thinking about and reflecting on Jesus, when turbulence come, we must carefully assess what Jesus went through for us. We think about the cross, we think about what he did, and there is comfort, guys. There is comfort in the fact that the creator of everything, the creator of the universe, the creator of us, he knit us together in our mother's womb, the creator of all things went through worse suffering than I will ever go through. I will never have it as bad as Jesus had it on the cross and what he had to deal with. And if I know that, and if I know what he went through, I can avoid the faintness of heart if my attention is on Jesus and not solely my circumstances. What Jesus tells us to do, what what he does, the Holy Spirit told David in Psalm was that we are to cast our cares on him. It doesn't mean that we don't bear a certain amount of that weight, but Jesus gets up under that weight with us and together we can move forward, together we can carry it. We cast our concerns, we cast our burdens on him. And as children, this is a hard one to wrap your brain around, as children of God, there are times when seemingly bad things happen to us and it's not the devil who does it, it's actually God sometimes that sometimes things happen to us that we don't understand, but God is discipling us, disciplining us. And God uses discipline to create holiness in us. Now the recipients of this letter, Hebrews, were told that they had not got to the point of shedding blood yet, which means they have not had it as bad as Jesus had it yet. And it also implies that some of them were afraid of being killed for their faith, so they were pushing away from their faith. And here's the thing, on some level or another, every single one of us will be tempted to walk away from knowing Christ. When Jesus said that we're all gonna pick up a cross, that wasn't like a joke, that he wasn't just saying it for the heck of it. When he said, when you follow me, you're gonna have to carry a cross, all of us will have some kind of burden. We will have some kind of temptation to walk away from what we have. My old pastor used to say, every Christian will look in the mirror and ask themselves, am I crazy for doing what I'm doing? Am I crazy for believing what I'm believing? We will all have a cross to bear. And what we tend to do though, is we tend to take the discipline of Jesus for granted. The author here, there's a quote, if you look at your Bible, it's from Proverbs 3 in that part of, of Hebrews that I read. And what this does is it mentions that God disciplines us because he loves us. Now listen, I don't know if anyone else in here has dad issues besides me. My dad, I'm 36 and for for probably 10 of my 36 years of my life, my father has not spoken to me. He's in the middle of not speaking to me right now. Now, I've gotten over that and I don't like wake up, you know, like distraught about it or anything, but it does cause insecurities in me. Now, there's a lot of things I do not do well when it comes to my relationship with God. One of the things I feel like I do well is I received discipline from God well. The reason why is I had a father that never disciplined me. And when I was never disciplined, when I was a kid, if you've come to a next class, I got in a slew of trouble because I had no discipline in my life. So when God does things to get my attention, instead of me getting mad and shaking my fist, I'm like, God, I am so happy that you care enough about me to want to put me on the right path and correct me and reprove me. It is amazing to know, listen, it is amazing to know that the God that created everything cares enough about you to say, stop, you're gonna go off a cliff, stop. That is amazing. And so there are long-term benefits of trials and we must trust that God is maturing us for his purposes. Even through the worst circumstances, there is something there that God is trying to do to us. So how do we respond to that? Sometimes, and we all do it, we, 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 we go in, we default into victim mode. Oh, woe is me, right? Sometimes we're so obsessed with placing the blame on our circumstances. I've ended up here because this happened to me or this happened to me. Therefore, I did this. I made this mistake. That we often forget to ask, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? When we're going through adversities, when we're going through hard times, sometimes we're so focused on just woe is me, we're having a pity party, I do it too, that we miss the lesson that may be in that circumstance. What am I to learn? What am I to do from this? Now listen, we start to view trials and tests differently when we understand that we are not illegitimate kids, we're not illegitimate children, we are sons and daughters of Jesus. Now, an illegitimate child gets treated poorly by their parent. A true child, the blood that flows through our our, our veins is the blood of Jesus Christ, and he treats us like sons and daughters. So whatever he does to us, he doesn't want to zap us with lightning bolts. He wants to make us into something special for his purposes. And if we understand that, we respond to the tests and trials of life uh, significantly different. So, there's another extreme to this. Um, Earthly parents, if you're a parent in here, I hope you discipline your kids. We do the best we can, right? We do it based on what seems good to us. God disciplines us in order for us to become like him. Here's what holiness is, essentially. Holiness is acting, thinking, living as close to we can is what Jesus does. When we were made, right now, physically, We are made to resemble God. We look like God to a certain extent. God has a head and arms and legs and a torso, and he looks something like us, right? As we grow closer to him, God wants to make us even more in his image by how we think, how our heart operates, how we treat other people, our mindset, our character. God is refining us. That essentially is holiness. The Bible says he wants us to be holy like he is holy. Now, we're not fully gonna be holy like he is holy until we get to heaven, but right now he's starting that process of making us act and think like him. Now, we love to teach grace. Everyone loves grace. I've never met anyone who's just like, ah, grace. You know, like, Everyone likes grace, right? We're the recipients of grace. Churches teach grace, and that's wonderful. God is gracious, but we also need to know that God is righteous, and he's holy, and there is an absolute right and wrong when it comes to God and his principles, and so we teach grace, but we need to understand that God shows us grace in order to lead us into holiness, He keeps picking us up when we spill over on our bike, so he can eventually take the training wheels off and let us cruise, right? He shows us grace, he dusts us off, but eventually he wants us to become more independent. He wants us to be able to travel more like he travels and walk and talk and do things more like he does things. We are to conform to holiness. So no discipline's fun at the time, right? No one goes through hard times and you're just like, man, this is so great. I'm so glad that we're broke right now, right? No one goes through this. It's never enjoyable at the time. Discipline, sorry for the crassness, just kind of sucks sometimes. But when we make it through, any of you, whenever, whenever tough times go, do you usually find the person that's never been through anything? Hey, you've never been through anything. Can you help me with this problem? No, that's not what we do. We find someone who's a little bit older possibly and has been through the ringer and they made it out the other side. When we make it out the other side, we now have something to offer. We now have something to, to bring to the table. We are enlightened. We are more mature and we can help the people around us. It yields peace. It yields righteousness. Okay, the story about my dumb car, another one, right? Two and one, one service. So the other day, this just, just God teaching Corey a lesson. I'm driving in my car and I've been working on this car and my car has typically ran really, really well. And you know, it's 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 just I'm driving it around one day and it's hot outside, and I'm driving it, and all of a sudden the transmission stops shifting. It only has two gears. It's 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 in first gear and it's stuck in first gear, it won't get out of first gear. So I'm on like memorial and broad, right? All like like that's like the hell of intersections, right? So I'm there at Memorial and Broad in my old car, and I can't shift that of first gear. And I'm like, oh, Lord. I said some colorful words that later I had to go back and be like, God, I'm sorry for those words. And, and I'm driving with the windows down, and I'm sure people are passing me like, oh, that's my pastor. Whoa, what did he just say? And um, so I'm, I'm driving, and uh, this is no exaggeration. I'm having this conversation with God, and I'm like, God, man, I have one hobby, one hobby, and now it's not working properly, right? One hobby and I'm so mad and I'm shaking the steering wheel and I get home after acting like a complete, you know, nine-year-old in this car. I jack it up, I look underneath and I'm looking at the transmission. I'm like, is there something I can just, you know, fix or whatever? And there's two little vacuum hoses like this and they're not connected, right? This little tube had fallen off. So I went to like O'Reilly's and picked up a little tube and it was like six bucks, stuck this thing on, got back in the car, transmission completely fine, right? So that's when I'm just like, God, I love you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? But there was a lesson to be learned in this. If I wouldn't have gone through this, I wouldn't know how to fix the transmission. I know that sounds so dumb, but if I wouldn't have gotten, if it wouldn't have messed up, I wouldn't know even where to look. So if you ever buy an old car, like an old Ford, I can probably help you with the transmission a little bit. I learned a little bit, a little bit from that, and now I'm just a little bit more savvy to that. And I know that's a really, really dumb comparison but sometimes we go through things so we can come out a little bit wiser than what we were before, and we learn. Okay, next part. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone. I'm gonna read that one more time. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. For without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance though he sought it with tears. So when we're looking at Jesus and we're trying to understand discipline, verse 12 and 13 say that we we have hope from God that when our hands are tired and our knees are weak, that if we're looking at him and if we're trying to understand that he disciplines those that he loves, we will be encouraged. Even when we're weak, even when we're struggling, God, I know you love me. There is an encouragement in there. Again, we need the church community. When some of you are weak, I may be strong and I can help. There are other times when I will be weak and I need your help. That's why we need the community. That's why God designed the church and that's why we need to be a part of it. When we are weak, others are strong. And so with Christ's help, we can walk what the Bible says, a level path. Now, walking a level path, the first stage of that is we are to pursue peace with everyone. Hard times often make us look out for ourselves first, but believers are not called to divide. Believers are called to unify. This is why I have such a hard time with politics and talking politics. That's one of those things, right when you bring that up, people are just divided, right? You're either hard this way or hard that way. And people are so divided and there's little diplomacy. And that is just not the way that we are called to act. We are called to unify. We are called to, to be peaceful, loving people, even with people that don't think the same as us. Not only are we to pursue peace, we are to pursue holiness. We are to hate evil and love purity. We don't hate evil people. We don't hate people who do things that we know are wrong, but we hate sin. We hate the fact that evil happens, and we love purity. And we live in a manner that pleases God by following his commands. We pursue holiness. We must also be alert. More and more, as times get crazier and crazier, Christians need to be on guard. First, so people don't fall through the cracks so people do not fall short of the grace of God, that we are to assist those who are struggling in their faith and we are to bear their burdens. Christianity has become masterful of kicking their brothers and sisters when they're down. Did you hear that so-and-so cheated on their wife? Oh my gosh. Did you hear that so-and-so did this? Did you hear that so-and-so fell to this? And as Christians, we should have sympathy and empathy for them. And whenever people are struggling, we are to get underneath that weight and say, let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. That's what we are called to do. Galatians 6.2 says, bear each other's burdens, therefore fulfilling the law of Christ. So when we kick other Christians when they're down, we're doing the complete opposite of fulfilling the law of Christ. So second, to be alert, We must prevent people from growing bitter. This doesn't mean having a bad attitude. This means we must identify and stop any actions that might contaminate the minds and hearts of believers. That if you are struggling with, again, let's say sexual sin, and if you will take it, I will say to you, hey, maybe you shouldn't watch these kinds of movies. Maybe you shouldn't read Fifty Shades of Grey. Right? I was kind of blown away with how many Christian women read that book, but that's a whole other rant for another time. Anyways, that we should be careful about what we read. We should be careful about what we watch and listen to. And we shouldn't be offended by that correction. Someone is looking out, making sure that our minds and our hearts are not contaminated by evil things. We must do that. We must be alert. And if we are not alert, the results of that can be catastrophic. If we are not engaged in a walk with God, if we are not engaged in the local church, we can end up like a character from Genesis 25, a guy named Esau. Now, Christians, if you know who that is, if you don't know who it is, Esau had a brother, right? He was the, he was the oldest of the two brothers, and he was the first one to inherit their father's uh, legacy, if you will, not just money, but like this, this pride that came along with being the oldest. Now, we always bust on Esau. We talk bad about Esau because we say, How could a guy who had everything offered to him give it up for a moment of physical pleasure? Right? Sound familiar? We've all done it. He was in a moment where he became irreverent. He didn't appreciate his inheritance, and he was hungry, and in his, his moment of kind of physical weakness, he gave it all away for one bowl of soup. Pretty stupid, huh? We say that, but how many times have we put everything on the line for what we looked at on the internet, or what we did behind uh, uh, closed doors, or what we did on our tax papers, or whatever the case may be. How many times have we put everything on the line for one little moment of satisfaction? And without a strong connection to God and church, what happens is we become immoral, and even worse, we become irreverent. We're not afraid of God anymore. We live in a generation, I'm not talking about non-believers, I'm talking about Christians. We live in a generation of Christians who are not afraid of God. They have no proper respect of God. And you shouldn't walk around in fear of a guy that's gonna zap you with lightning bolts. But man, if you can snap your fingers and create the universe, you should have an awe of that individual, right? And so this is an extremely dangerous road to travel when people become immoral and irreverent. And again, I'm not picking on grace. I love grace. I'm the recipient of grace all the time. We need to teach grace. We are saved by grace, But people abuse grace. Jesus is quick to forgive. He's quick to restore. But the abuse of grace, thinking that grace gives us the the liberty to sin, it does not. Paul made that clear. But if we think that grace gives us the liberty to sin, we go into a reprobate mind and and a distorted heart that doesn't even understand what grace truly is. Grace is the forgiveness and the generosity of God to eventually lead us into holiness. God is gracious. He is also righteous. He's a balance of the two. Next part. For you have not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged for not another word to be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is judge of all, to the spirit of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Now let me explain to you what's going on there. This is the author going back and comparing the Old Testament promise and the New Testament promise. And he reminds us that we have a different approach to God than they had at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God showed up very visibly, very audibly, and it was terrifying. Even Moses said, I'm terrified. They would see big pillars of fire, pillars of smoke. When they were at Mount Sinai, that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, there was smoke in the presence of God on the top of this mountain. If you were standing by the base of the mountain, you could see this, and it was kind of scary. And so the Exodus Jews, at that time, they were unworthy to be in the presence of God, and it was evident. They couldn't get close to Mount Sinai. in the old way, that way, stands in contrast to the new way. The separation of God's people under the Old Testament law is contrasted by the fact that because Jesus died on the cross, any one of us can now be in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, at Mount Sinai, if you got too close to the mountain, there was a law that was passed by God. Even if an animal touched the mountain, they had to be stoned, right? That would be terrible, right? Your dog gets loose, touches the mountain, people start picking up rocks, anything that touched the mountain had to be stoned. But now we can approach God with confidence, chapter 4 of Hebrews, because when Jesus died on the cross, that dividing line between us and God has been completely abolished. Now, that sounds wonderful, but the downside of that is this. In the Old Testament, if you broke the laws of God, you died physically. In the New Testament, if we reject the invitation... To be in the presence of God, we will die for eternity. Not die literally the way we think of death, but we will be in hell for eternity. We will be separated from God, and there's a much more severe consequence than just physical death. So, we are not asked to approach Mount Sinai like they did in the Old Testament, right, where they received the law. We are asked to approach Mount Zion. Now, Sinai is where the law was given to Moses, It was a scary event, like I said. And verse 22 is alluding to the fact that that's not the way it is anymore. Now we can approach Zion. Zion is not a literal mountain. Zion is a representation of heaven. It's a representation of God's grace. It's a representation of the calmness and the accessibility that we now have with God. It's not like the old ways. We have direct access to the Father. And that's not just talking about eternity. Zion is not just heaven, it represents heaven, but it's not just in the afterlife. We get to experience that now. When we become devoted followers of Christ, we get contentment now. Someone one time said to me that Christ wants us to be happy. That's not true. Happiness is contingent on your circumstances. Jesus isn't worried about your happiness. Jesus wants you to be content. Contentment is not determined on your circumstances. The beauty of Jesus is we can have joy and contentment even if the entire world is burning around us. Happiness is contingent on what's happening around you. Joy and contentment is not. And we have something greater than happiness. And there is a fulfillment that we receive right when we become believers and we get the full extent of that, the consummation, the completion of that when we get to heaven, when we are in Zion, when we are in the presence of God, we will be 100%. So we are dual citizens. We are citizens of this earth, this country. We are also citizens of heaven. And even though we are firstborn and we are born again into God's family, we are to approach God with awe and with reverence. He is judge of all. This means we are to respect God. Proverbs, Solomon said, the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord that we are to have a healthy respect of God and to be aware of the dangers of turning from God. We must not just be hearers of this. Don't just hear what we're reading today. We are called to be doers of the word. That's what James said. And so what the author said here is the blood of Jesus is greater than the blood of Abel. It's not comparing Jesus and Abel. It's comparing the blood that was shed during Abel's time and then the blood that was shed through Jesus Christ, the two different promises And Jesus enables us to be square with our Father, to be reconciled with our Father, regardless of what we've done. If we ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven. And the blood of Jesus proclaims forgiveness, it proclaims reconciliation, and it promises a spiritual power to all those that believe we can be the men and women that God wants us to be. We can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We can display the fruit of the Spirit. We can live the way that Jesus wants us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what His blood promises. Last part. You guys still awake out there? One more part and I'm done. Okay, good, good. Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected Him who warned them from earth, even less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also heaven the expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken that is created things so that what is not shaken might remain therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us hold on to grace by it We may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the Exodus Jews, for the most part, if you read the book of Exodus, not every single individual Jew, but the nation as a whole, sound familiar, rejected God, the nation as a whole. And the Exodus Jews, for the most part, they saw visible, audible, tangible demonstrations of God. They saw pillars of fire, pillars of smoke, manna from heaven, the Ark of the Covenant that had the glory of God that surrounded it. They saw things that they could see and hear. And presently, God doesn't really speak to us like that. I'm not saying that miraculous things can't happen, I'm not saying that there's not signs and wonders, but God doesn't show up in pillars of fire to whole nations anymore. He speaks to us through the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross. He speaks to us through grace. He speaks to us in a still, small voice, the Bible says. He speaks to us differently. And so these people were warned because God literally shook the earth. He shook the earth to get the people's attention. You could hear thunder and and you could see the cloud of glory that was the glory of God, all these different displays. But the people did not stand on him. So God will shake all things To show what will truly stand. And this is referring to the final judgment. And if we are not distracted, towards the end of time, Revelation chapter 18, towards the end of time, God will shake the heavens, shake the earth. It even says in the end of Revelation, there will be cosmic shifts. There will be shifts on earth, physical shifts and it will shake all things. It will shake culture and philosophy. It will shake entertainment. It will shake all things, politics and government. All things will be shaken down. And if we are not distracted, and if we are not allured away by the things of the world, we can stand firm on the only thing that will not be shaken, the kingdom of God. This is why, guys, and I'm not, man, you guys probably think I'm a communist. The reason why I, I... encourage the church, do not put your hope in governments because governments will inevitably fall. The Bible says so. Don't put your hope in men and women. If you're doing that, you're gonna have to wait at least four years. Anyways, don't put your hope in men and women because even the best men and women, even if we have the best candidates in the world to vote from, they still cannot save you and I. They still cannot save us. They are still shakable. And we are to stand on the only thing that will never pass away. It doesn't mean that we're not respectful of the government. It doesn't mean that we don't invest and that we're not wise and things like that. But those things will come to an end. And we are called to stand on the one thing that will never come to an end. So how do we respond to such an offer? First, we respond to the knowledge of the cross with humility and thankfulness. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you sat and pondered the enormity of what Jesus did on the cross? If you have Netflix, go back and watch The Passion of the Christ again. I'm not trying to lift up Mel Gibson or say that that movie is completely accurate and everything it teaches. I know it takes artistic liberties, but it gives a very good depiction of what the crucifixion probably looked like. And every once in a while, we need to just ponder and meditate and think on what Christ has done for us. Guys, when we take communion, this is not just bread and juice that you take for the heck of it. There's nothing mystical about it, but what it does is it reminds us it's to be a tangible, a tangible reminder of what Christ has done for us, and it should not be taken lightly. Secondly, if we understand the enormity of the cross, we are to respond in worship. We show reverence, joy, hard work, praise and servitude to Christ. Worship is singing. Worship is is lifting your hands. And and guys, like, like, I'm not saying you have to flop on the floor like a fish or beat a tambourine to death or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But there should be some kind of demonstrative worship from us. When we sing amazing grace, and if you've been saved by amazing grace, guys, I love you, but I'm flabbergasted knowing some of your stories that we sing amazing grace and people just kind of like, Man, we're talking about the grace of Jesus Christ for God's sake. That doesn't move us. We're not in awe of what Jesus has done. My Lord, stand up and sing. Raise a hand, get on a knee, be demonstrative. He was quite demonstrative for us. We should be somewhat demonstrative to him. That is not the only form of worship though. If you're more demonstrative to me in your worship, it doesn't mean you're more holy than me. There are other ways that we show our worship in our work, in our attitudes, how we talk to our barista at Starbucks, how we tip the waiter at Red Robin, how we treat others, how we love our neighbor, how we go out of our way, how we show grace and love to those that don't even agree with us or don't live like us or don't believe like us. We worship in how we live our lives as well. And we do all this because God is a consuming fire. We revere We are in awe of God because he is the fire that refines all things. He is the fire that purifies, shakes down, brings everything down to its most basic element. And listen, again, we celebrate grace that says that. Hold on to grace. We're saved by grace. But God's character is also the fact that he is a righteous judge. He is pure. He is holy. And we cannot expect grace if we willingly deny grace, if we turn to sin and rebellion and false gods, we must show our faith by how we live in obedience to God. So let me end with this. The Bible says that all things will be shaken. If you just want confirmation for that, if you don't believe Hebrews 12 and you want to see it somewhere else in the Bible, your homework should be read Revelation chapter 18. It's a happy chapter. Basically what happens in chapter 18 it's not a happy chapter. What happens in Revelation chapter 18 is there is a city that's going to be built in the future, not in the United States. It's going to be built somewhere in the Middle East, that there will be a city that's going to be built. The Bible calls it the New Babylon. We don't know what it's going to be called, but there's going to be this city. And this city that's going to be built sometime in the future is going to be the epicenter of all culture, technology, arts, materialism. What I mean by that is it's going to be very decadent. There's going to be a lot of money there. It's going to be very affluent. It's going to be the the hub, the epicenter of all earthly pleasures. It's going to be a place where you can indulge in anything you want. It's going to be a very godless city because the gods that they've created are the things around them. And what happens in Revelation 18 is God's going to level the city. And so the people... Who love this city, right? They're in love with the city. It says that they weep and they mourn for their city. Not because of the architecture, not because they're in love with the buildings, but they're looking at the fact that all of their culture, listen, listen, all of their culture is crumbling. All of their entertainment is crumbling. All their decadent lifestyles are crumbling. All their technology is crumbling. All their earthly pleasures are crumbling. Everything that they thought was solid and real was shaken, and it proved not to be so sturdy. That confirms Hebrews chapter 12. All things will be shaken. So if we hold on to these things and think that they are firm, the Bible says explicitly they are not. They're not firm. They will be shaken by God. All things will be shaken. So on another note, it is inevitable that hard times will come. Not just apocalyptic hard times. If you are living right now, you are going to go through turbulence. I don't care how great life seems right now, something's going to happen. Someone you love is going to pass away. Someone's going to get sick. Uh, Economies are going to crash. Wars are going to take place. Family issues are going to arise. Bad things happen even to the best of people because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken, messed up world. But also, things will happen to us, turbulence will happen because Jesus does those things. And he wants to refine us like pure gold, 1 Peter 1.7. If you know how that process works, the only way to get pure, beautiful gold is you have to turn the heat up to a ridiculous level. And that makes, listen, the heat makes the impurities rise to the top And then someone can scrape away the impurities and you're left with pure gold. That's what God wants to do with us. Sometimes he turns on the heat, the impurities rise to the surface, and they can be removed by God. And what's left is pure, beautiful gold. So the question is this. If culture's going to fall, if entertainment's going to fall, if politics are going to fall, if governments are going to fall, If economies are going to fall, if everything is going to be shaken and fall apart, what are we standing on? What are we tethered to? What are we depending on? What is our rock? What is our foundation? And if we're honest with ourselves, we all say Jesus, right? Jesus. But when the pressure is put on some of us, man, we run and we don't run to Jesus. We run to food or sex or weed or alcohol, or pornography, or whatever the case may be. We run to bind more clothes because that's gonna make us feel better. That's that's always very depressing for me. Last time I was at Gap, I was like, hey, there's something wrong with your guys' sizes. (laughs) And so we depend on all these things. The other question is this, what are we to learn? Now listen not because I'm a prophet or a mind reader, but because there's a lot of people in this room. There are people in this room, some of you are going through some junk right now. Now I'm sorry that you're going through that junk, but I wanna ask you a question. What are you supposed to learn in the middle of that? What is the lesson that God is trying to teach you right now? Even if it's not your fault, even if it's not his fault, what is God wanting to pull out of us or make, make boil up in us? Or What is God trying to do to you? What is God trying to do to me? And when the pressure is put on, where do we run? Where do we find comfort? Where do we find contentment? Do we run to the strong tower that is Jesus Christ? Or do we run to things that we know are not gonna make us feel better? If you've ever slipped up and looked at pornography, you know how it feels afterwards. You don't feel great. If you've slipped up and gotten drunk and passed out at someone's house, you don't feel awesome the next morning. You don't feel good about yourself. You feel wanting, lacking, incomplete. That's not the way God leaves us. That's not the way God leaves us. Would you bow your heads with me? Hey, listen, on my left, your right, there's going to be some men and women who will be willing to pray for you. They're not perfect. They don't have it all figured out. But they respect and revere the Lord, and they would love to pray for you. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, again, I am no prophet and I'm no soothsayer. But I can take a pretty good guess that there are some of you in here who are just in some kind of confusing circumstance. Maybe it's economic. Maybe it's issues with your family. Maybe it's issues with your job. I don't care what it is. If you just want us to help you pray, if you want some people to help bear the burdens for you, there's men and women on my right and left, come up here and just Just let them pray for you. It's not a big deal. Just come up here and say, I need someone to help me lift this up to the Lord. Where in a two or three you're gathered in Jesus' name, he's there with them. Let someone help bear that burden. Maybe exchange a phone number or get a hold of us and let us pray with you. If you're in here and you are not a believer in Jesus, here's the question I want to ask you. Have the things you've been doing been producing the results you want them to produce? Has the sex, has the drugs, has the intoxication, has the porn, has the vegging out on Netflix for two days because you want to escape reality, has that made you feel better? Has that brought you contentment and joy and peace? If not, which I'm sure it hasn't, if not, with a little bit of courage, ask God, even if it's a God you don't even fully believe in yet, ask God to just give you some kind of sign to make you feel something to let you know that he's there. And I think he'll do that. If you're in here and you are a believer, there is communion 360 degrees around this church. Everywhere you turn where there's a little lamp, there's communion. That represents the body and blood of Jesus, the gracious God that gave his life and resurrected for us. You are welcome to partake in that if you ask God to forgive you of your sins. What a great honor that we have. And that is available to you and you can help yourself to that. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I pray, Father, right now for any circumstances in this room, any situations, I pray, Lord Jesus, right now, God, that you start to intervene. Lord, to the non-believer, Jesus, give them a sign. Lord, to the believer, God, give them hope and give them strength to have endurance. For those, God, who are struggling with some kind of situation, God, Lord, give them the courage to be prayed for and let us bear that burden with them, God, and they'll make it through. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're a gracious, loving God. And we pray all this in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of the weekend.